You are listening to the Visualizing War and Peace podcast. In each episode, we look at how people have experienced, described, or imagined armed conflict in different periods and places. And we discuss the impact which representations of war and peace can have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig, and I direct the Visualizing War and Peace project at the University of St. Andrews. My guest today is Professor Stephen Murdoch, Head of Military History at the Swedish Defence University. Before that, he was a professor of military history here at St. Andrews, and he's been a generous supporter of the Visualising War project from its start, so it's really wonderful to have him on the podcast. Steve's research has focused particularly on the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648, so we're going to dive into that today. He's also written a range of books and articles about Scottish maritime warfare and wider Scottish experiences, both military and civilian, of conflict in the early modern period. As both a teacher and researcher, Steve thinks critically about how we do military history, about our blind spots and biases, the evolution of historical events into sometimes mythical narratives, the voices we don't hear from, and the relevance of military history to contemporary military thinking and practice. These topics are really important to the Visualising War and Peace project, so I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Steve, thanks very much for making time to talk to me today, and welcome to the Visualising War and Peace podcast. Thank you, Alice. It's nice to be back in St Andrews, so to speak. Absolutely. So, Steve, I've got lots of different questions for you. As I've said, lots of them are going to centre around the Thirty Years' War. And I wonder then if we can kick off with you just giving our listeners a high-speed introduction to that conflict. Can you help us picture where it took place and who ended up getting involved? Okay, well, when I was at Aberdeen University, the Thirty Years' War was introduced to me by a scholar called Paul Jukes. And he did one of the things that I've been unable to get out of my head ever since I've studied the war. He imagined it as the Olympic flag, where some of the rings overlapped and some of the rings had no actual impact on the rings surrounding them. So when he tried to introduce the concept of the Thirty Years' War to me, it was a number of overlapping conflicts, sometimes with actors fighting in several directions and with several alliances, sometimes individualistic wars. And wars which aren't often associated with the Thirty Years' War directly, such as the Smolensk War between Poland and Russia, with which some of the actors in the Thirty Years' War had some relevance. And it's a difficult war to try to get your head round. The term Thirty Years' War was coined in 1648 already. It was how it was referred to, this Thirty Years' War. But of course, that's only one view of it. Some people say it's an extension of the ongoing Eighty Years' War involving the Dutch Republic fighting against the Spanish Habsburgs. And of course, the war didn't end in 1648 in some people's minds, because France continued to have its war with Spain through into the late 1650s. And there were other ongoing conflicts which never really went away in the Thirty Years' War. And there were also spin-off wars that arose out of the Thirty Years' War. Arguably, the British Civil Wars could be involved in that. So if we're looking at the Thirty Years' War, Traditionally, the war is conceived of as beginning in 1618 with the defenestration of Prague, which is when imperial regents and one of their servants, three of them in total, were famously thrown out of the window of Prague Castle. And thereafter, the Protestant nobility of Bohemia elects a new king, and that would be Frederick V of the Palatinate. And that's in 1619 when he comes to Prague to accept the throne And from there on in, you can say you're into the Thirty Years' War. Now, when I was being taught it, it was still very traditional to think of the war as being in phases, the Bohemian phase, 
one could say then the Danish phase, the Swedish phase, then the French phase. But that actually doesn't do justice to the complexity of the war itself, because there's seldom a moment when there aren't combatants, say from Bohemia, who are in the war from start to finish. And the same would be true of involvement in the Dutch revolt. But also, people would think in those phases of, say, the Swedish phase, maybe lasting 1630 to 1635, but Sweden doesn't come out of the war until the very end in 1648. And people are assuming the dominance of the French after the Swedish defeat at Nordlingen in 1634, and therefore thinking Sweden is no longer an actor in this. And that's why the, the phases don't quite work. I mean, Sweden had been courted to join in the war already in the early 1620s, but it was a dispute with the Danes which actually prevented them from joining in. So where did the war take place? Well, the main battleground is, is the Holy Roman Empire. It's in what we now call Germany, in the central German-speaking states. But it does involve countries, Denmark, Sweden, Britain is involved for very good reasons. Where would you get a British interest in what's going on in Prague? Well, Frederick V himself was a naturalised Englishman who had married the daughter of James VI. So you have a Scottish princess from Fife married to a naturalised Englishman. And that's why I really study, which is the British contingent in the Thirty Years' War. Estimates from myself and from some of my PhD student cohorts, we would suggest that there's probably fifty to 60,000 Scots on the Protestant side or the, the Northern Alliance. There's equally as many Englishmen, if not more, along with quite a, a strong Irish contingent. And then to a lesser extent, in the Habsburg side, you also have Scots, English and Irish fighting for their own confessional reasons. But I mentioned there could be a French involvement there, and that's where the whole idea that this is a war of reformation comes slightly unstuck, because one of the big supporters of the northern powers is Catholic France. And Cardinal Richelieu is a supporter of the war. He finances the Swedish war effort. And here we've got to see real politics coming into play. What is in it for France to get involved in a war which is essentially against the Holy Roman Empire? or Habsburg, Spain. And of course, that's down to the proximity of France and Spain together. So it's an ongoing conflict that doesn't end at the end of the Thirty Years' War. So at different periods, we've got different power groups getting involved. But one constant that I argue is that throughout the war, from 1619 onwards, you have this continual presence of British troops, because for them, it's a war over the dignity of Elizabeth of Bohemia and her husband, Frederick V. Causes? Is it a war of reformation? Well, yes and no. It's undoubted that the majority of Scots who fight in the northern armies are Calvinists, and the majority of Scots who fight in the Habsburg side are exiled Roman Catholics. But there's also a large Scottish contingent that fight in France, and actually towards the end of the war, not at the beginning. So that by 1641 to 43, you get the influx of about 12,000 Scottish soldiers into France. And these, surprisingly, are Calvinist soldiers who want to help France defeat the Holy Roman Empire and seem to have no problem with fighting in a largely Catholic army. But that's because Cardinal Richelieu grants them freedom of religion as part of their contract to come in. So it's a very interesting war from that perspective. 
Very interesting and incredibly complex. And the term the 30 years war was coined at the time. The idea that it's a singular war is clearly a complete myth. The idea that it's bound by those 30 years is also a myth. So you've sketched this picture of the complexity of causes, political drivers, religious drivers, but but really very mixed religious and political affiliations within that, um, within different fighting forces as well. And then the input and involvement of so many different stakeholders from all sorts of different parts of Europe and indeed Scandinavia and that British contingent, Irish, Scots contingent as well. So really a very complex picture. Do we have any idea who coined the term the 30 Years War? First time I actually realised that this was a contemporary term. It was a published broadsheet when Paul Dukes put up a, I think you'll remember acetates from back in the day, when he put a, a slide up in an overhead projector of a German broadsheet which said this 30 Years War is now at an end. There is still huge debate amongst historians as to whether we should use the term. When do you find these side wars, like the Smolensk War or the British Civil Wars, when can you actually conceive of them as being part of the Thirty Years' War or not? And I think the way to look at this is, if you look at the Covenanting Revolution in 1639, that the top generals and every officer and every second non-commissioned officer are veterans of the Swedish military, with one or two who came back over from the French brigades. The Swedes see purpose fighting a proxy war against a monarch they believe is getting too friendly with Spain. Charles I is taking a Spanish pension at this point. What if he was to deploy the Royal Navy and all these resources to continue the war against the former allies as opposed to to supporting them? And the French have got the same input there. Why does Cardinal Richelieu support a covenanting revolution which seeks to establish Scotland as a fully Presbyterian country. But of course, to Richelieu, he doesn't want Charles to be supporting Spain. And that's the kind of geopolitic, real politic that we've got going on here. So it it is a complex war. Very complex. Really fascinating that that German broadsheet is this first use of that term and it gets us into storytelling. So clearly it's reflecting some contemporary understanding that there was a a line was being drawn, a caesura, but also a certain amount of perhaps propaganda and storytelling. So thinking a bit more about storytelling and about the challenge of studying and compartmentalizing and and visualizing this mix of overlapping conflicts, those Olympic rings, when historians or documentary makers or indeed novelists or others look back on the Thirty Years' War, what key events do they tend to highlight as particularly significant episodes? What are, I suppose, the sort of the things that tend to stand out and recur in the storytelling about this conflict? I think it's the classic moment of great men in big battles. You can have Wallenstein sieging Stralsund. You have hero kings who are unimaginable in their presence that they projected themselves at the time and live on in the imagination after, like Gustav Adolf. So when even when I speak to my Swedish students and I say, tell me about the Thirty Years' War and the Swedish contingent, they say Gustav Adolf. Well, Gustav Adolf was in it for two years out of 20 that the Swedes were involved. People are drawn to these fascinating characters. And he in particular, being known as the Lion of the North and the, the mythology about the saviour of Europe was going to come from, from the, the cold north of Scandinavia. It is just something that you cannot get away from. If you look at smaller battles, People will often look at a character because they know them from later on in their career. Blotho Bridge, which we'll come to later. People focus on Prince Rupert, who was absolutely a minor player in that battle. We can discuss that further down. So I think the problem is 
we've got some spectacular set-piece battles in the Thirty Years' War. This is the era of siege warfare. So people will like to delve into the siege of Bergen op Zoom because it gives you an example of Dutch fortification warfare, siege warfare, how the sides take on these massive fortresses, both to defend them and to attack them. And so people are getting really obsessed by that technological side of the war. But also there's the huge set-piece battles, such as Breitenfeld in 1631, Nordlingen, which is a catastrophe for the Swedes in 1634, Wittstock, 1636. So many people can only conceive of the Thirty Years' War through the great military leaders that often that have been mythologized and the big set-piece battles, because that's what many people think war is, which, mm-hmm. of course, is a nonsense. War is often the involvement of all levels of society, not just the kings, the emperor, the cleric, such as Richelieu I'm thinking of there, but right down to the common soldier, right down to the peasant in the field, right down to the women. 51% of the population are involved in these wars, especially in Germany. But even if you're in the war from a distance, you've got wives, you've got widows, you've got children, and, and these should be considered as well. Yeah, absolutely. That more holistic war story. And as an ancient historian, I'm really familiar with that trend that lots of accounts of ancient conflicts are not so much a holistic war story, but a sort of series of battle narratives, as you say, focused around rather mythologized characters, very, very powerful people from the elite, largely men, rather than ordinary people whose voices drop out. So when we are thinking about reconstructing and and reimagining and visualizing the Thirty Years' War. Do our ancient sources offer us a more holistic picture than modern accounts and, you know, modern obsessions with technology or modern interest in set-piece battles? Are our ancient sources that survive more balanced than that? Or do some of our ancient sources also really foreground battles and siege warfare? The letters themselves that you get from the higher officers and the diplomats seldom focus on the big battles or the the technology. We do have letters about technology. This is an age of invention. We've got many people inventing new types of artillery, multiple firing weapons, all sorts of innovation are going on. But the majority of the letters are about the mundane or the political settlement. How can we avoid fighting the battle? What are our allies doing? What are our supplies looking at? One of my favorite letters I found, which is signed by the greatest concentration of generals of any document I've seen from the Thirty Years' War, because it's signed by five Scottish generals and one Scottish colonel. And the crux of it is, we need shoes. It's not, give us the latest siege technique. It's not that. We're here in Germany in the middle of winter, and we don't have shoes for our men. Resolve it. Now, I've never seen another document signed by so many generals. And I think that in itself speaks volumes for the way that we think that many of the higher officers are there to aggrandize themselves. But actually, they're thinking about their men. This is also the period you've got to remember when Robert Monroe, who wrote one of the most famous memoirs of the Thirty Years' War, comes back to Britain in 1634 to set up a hospital for invalids, which he insists all veteran soldiers should pay for, all veteran officers should pay for. Basically, you took your men there, they're back here, They can't work. They need to be looked after. And that's on you. And that goes through the Scottish Privy Council as something that is ratified in law. There is to be a veterans hospital. And that's quite interesting in the the kind of care and treatment you get. And I saw one letter from, it wasn't from a general, it was from a colonel 
but he wrote to Axel Oxenstierna as the regent of Sweden. I can't remember the soldier's name, but he says, this is Corporal X. He's been marching around with me for about 25 years. He's lived under canvas most of that time. He's old. Could we get him a little farm somewhere in Sweden so he can just go and live out the rest of his natural? And again, it is a very moving, touching letter of humanity from people whose basic role in life is dealing in death. And yet they're contemplating life, people's futures. And I, th I find those kind of sources are, are far more interesting to me than, say, a battle plan or an order of battle saying this is how we're going to line up at the next siege of Breda or whatever. Because at the end of the day, we're dealing with, with people. And too often we forget, we can talk about 3,000 people died at this battle, 10,000 people died in this siege. We're dealing with people, real people. And that struck me when I was the historical advisor to the Whitstock Mass Grave Project. And I got to look into the faces, or at least into the skulls, of real people. And the DNA analysis, we could place where these people came from. And because you can place where they came from next to the muster rolls of when recruitment went on, the skull they chose to do as the, the facial reconstruction came from within 20 kilometers of Kinusi. And because of that, I could then say, well, he's one of these 20 people. Because I've seen the muster roll from the month before Whitstock, and I've seen the muster roll from the month after for his regiment. And so you can say, I don't know exactly who you are, but I know kind of that you're one of these people. And once you've got that detail, then you can trace the families of the missing. You can't study this aspect of war without understanding the war. You can't study the outcome of a battle without understanding what that battle was and who was involved in it. But the big battle and the great men really need to move to the side now. We, mm. We've got them. You know. Now let's look at the other actors who are involved in the battle. Everybody down to the farrier who's putting the shoe on the horse, to the people back home and the people who are feeding them and the brewers and the bakers who are doing the supplies. That's what interests mm -hmm. me. Yeah, people and relationships. And as you talk there, you're reminding me, you know, that that approach that you're interested in sits very much alongside some work that's being done by one of my current colleagues, one of your former colleagues in international relations, Roxani Cristali, who's very interested in a different kind of war story where you actually centre love and care when you're um, visualising war and conflict and work out what role that plays. So you can see that emerging in some of the letters you've just mentioned. Um, and you yourself, Steve, have written about some of the voices and perspectives that we don't tend to hear from, you know, setting aside those great men and those um, big set piece battles. So, for example, you've got an article on what Scottish widows experienced during the Thirty Years War and also on the Bohemian exiles in particular displaced by the conflict. How important are these perspectives to visualising the Thirty Years War? I think they're imperative. When you take the Scottish widows or the or or the abandoned women, my most recent article is about abandoned women and their agency and trying to restore the reputation. One of those is a noble woman, Mary Haynes. But my favourite is Frances Drummond, who, as far as I can see, is a very ordinary English woman who's deserted by her Scottish husband. But her voice is, is impeccable. She goes to Germany to look for him. She doesn't find him. She comes back to England. Then she comes to Scotland during the Covenanting Revolution. And she's told where he is in Sweden. She then goes to Sweden penniless. And we find her on a, turns out to be a five-year search to gain her reputation because she was married in the eyes of God and people are calling her a whore 
because he had said that they were not legally married. And it's so important to her that she risks everything, traveling through war zones, traveling to several foreign countries. And therefore, you know, at this period, we could go into the high politics of the Covenanting Revolution. But the Lord General of the Covenanting Army, Alexander Leslie, a Swedish field marshal, takes time to follow her and to give her the route to Sweden so that she can go and restore her reputation. It didn't matter to him that she was of low birth. He was of low birth. So to him, this is a woman in distress and he could help. And he did. And I think those kind of uh, sources are really, really important. However, they're also extremely difficult to find. Presumably because they're, you know, they're not the voices that traditionally we've paid attention to. They're not the voices who would naturally have got published, circulated, become popular. So, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, displaced, all sorts of things work against their stories becoming dominant. You know, if you're displaced, your struggle is survival. Feed yourself to find a home. You don't have time necessarily to start disseminating your story. So all sorts of voices, as you say, drop off. Just staying with the voices that we don't hear about so much, the gaps in our knowledge and our understanding. If you could have three wishes and conjure up some new source material from the Thirty Years' War, what kinds of sources would you particularly love to find that would help us with this holistic visualisation of it? It's a great question, Alice. Okay, maybe I don't have much of a life and I'm a bit of a nerd, but I do sit and contemplate this. In the National Archives of Scotland, National Records of Scotland as they are now, I was not the first person to find these. I came across 12 letters from a common soldier. And they're written largely to the soldier's mother or wife. And they only survive because he shares the same name as his senior officer, James Spence, who is a diplomat and a general in the Swedish army. So these are letters that have miscarried. But we know from the fact that there's three of them written on the same day, which are nearly identical, that he's sending multiple letters because his expectation is those letters will miscarry. They only survive because they carry the name of the general. And they were originally catalogued under the general's name. But uh, an archivist in the 1950s put them aside and said, these letters are not to do with the general. And when I came across them in my research, I was like, these letters are gold. Because they tell us so much about the common soldier's perspective. He'd been in the Dutch brigade, so Calvinist International, probably wounded at Bergen-op-Zoom in 1622. He then enlists, comes back to Scotland and then enlists into the Swedish army in his namesake uh, regiment comes to Sweden, serves in Riga. But what do those letters actually tell us? This is the only corpus of letters from a common soldier from 100,000 Britons that we've encountered. And they tell us that they're writing letters all the time. He talks about the, the weekly post bag arriving. He talks about the weekly post bag leaving. He himself is nominated as the post carrier back to Scotland. So then the question is, why don't more letters survive? And the letter themselves tells us the answer to that. He says, loving mother, once you've read this letter and once you've shown it to everybody who can read, read it aloud to all those who can't. But after she's done that, the letter is then worthless as a letter. The information has been transmitted, but it makes a very good firelight in an age when you need combustible material. And that, alas, is what I think happened to most of the letters. People didn't have space. You know, the majority of people didn't have space to keep that kind of an archive. And they weren't interested in keeping that archive. It's quite clear from the letters of the drummer that he knows exactly what his mum wants to hear. And that's also problematic because we know he's writing to his mum. So what he wrote to his friends 
who were, were veterans, and we know that he is writing to his friends because he says it in the letter, could be a completely detail to the stuff he's writing to his mum. But he says this beautiful thing. He bullies his wife, and it is kind of bullying, into coming across to Riga to live with him. He goes back to Scotland, he gets her, she comes to Riga, she dies in childbirth, and he feels really guilty about it. So he asks permission from his commanding officer, his namesake, to leave the Swedish army, right at the start of Gustav Adolf's entry into the Thirty Years' War. He doesn't mention anything about the Thirty Years' War for causes or anything like that. This isn't like the noble memoirs. He says, yeah, Gustav Adolf's got a big war down in Germany, so the regiment's being deployed. But he himself goes back to the Netherlands to join the Dutch East India Company. And he writes a letter to his mum from Sierra Leone, and it's the last letter we have in the collection, where he says, loving mother, don't worry about me. I feel so guilty about bringing my wife to the point where she died in, in childhood. It was my fault. But you've not to worry because I promise not to marry another woman until I find a Scottish one. This is a man who's away for seven years service in the Dutch East India Company. And then he just writes, and if God allows it, I'll come back and hopefully that we'll see each other again. So these kind of personal touch are what I like to get out of letters. The unexpected, the humanity, you know, the, the, the fact that there's regret in these familial situations. But if I could find more letters like that, and certainly more of the peasantry affected by the Thirty Years' War campaigns, there's, there's only, I think, four German memoirs written during the Thirty Years' War period. We've got quite a few Scottish ones, actually. But it's these familiar letters that I want. I want to get down to the human, how war affects everybody from every strata of society, when they reflect on why they're there. And this comes out very well in the Dutch corpus of letters for wills and testaments, because you find there, and I've never seen this in other sources, but it's because they haven't been kept. But I did a, an analysis of wills and testaments from members of the Scots-Dutch Brigade, and you find competing ideas, loving wife, once I'm dead, you know, because they expect to die. That's that's absolute standard, 90% attrition rates. You know, they expect to die. Uh, once I'm dead, please marry another so that you can be well looked after and our children are well looked after. Except one, which says, please never marry another. It would break my heart to know that you'd married another. And you're thinking, wow, you know, <laughs> it's, it, it touches you here. A, a common soldier in the Scots-Dutch Brigade who's so clearly in love with his wife, he can't stand the thought of anybody going nearer, even once he's dead. I mean, it's it's astonishing. So th those are the kind of, of letters I really adore. You've now made me want to find lots of those letters. They offer amazing insights, not just into the Thirty Years' War, but into how people lived their lives and thought about their lives and their deaths amid war. So these people not writing about war per se, but giving us insights into life during conflict. So a really fascinating um, body of material, as you say, now, now largely lost. We might come back to a bit more general reflection on the Thirty Years' War in a minute, but I do want to keep pressing you a little bit about storytelling um, and storytelling during and after a conflict. And there are obviously lots of points when conflicts are being narrated, um, when historical events get reframed, when experiences get lost, as we've just been talking about, but also when myth starts to take over from history. And you've written about this very recently with your colleague, Catherine Zickerman, um, in relation particularly to the Battle of Lemgo, which is also known as the Battle of Lotho Bridge, which took place in 1638. So can you start by telling us where this battle fits into the wider history of the Thirty Years' War? Lotho Bridge or Lemgo was until recently considered to be quite a minor skirmish at best, also considered to have been the last throw of the dice 
recruits for what we would call the British-sponsored Palatinate Army. And that's where it sat. It was considered to be a crushing victory for the imperialists, which resulted in the basically the decimation of the Palatine Army and a humiliating defeat for their Swedish allies. Now, Peter Wilson came up and published just this year a new definition about what battles are and how many people it takes for one to consider a battle major. And under Peter Wilson's new definition, Lemgo Bridge is actually a big battle. It involved something around 12,000 people, which is not what it traditionally involved. Now, the problem with Lotho Bridge, Lemgo, is that one of the superstars got captured. He wasn't a superstar at the time. But Frederick V of the Palatinate is dead. His eldest son, Carl Ludwig, or Charles Louis, orchestrates this British-sponsored army with help from uh, private English fan financiers, uh, William Lord Craven being really important, but also Charles I puts money into it. And they, as they progress into Europe, it's traditionally thought that 4,000 of the Palatinate army met up with about 1,000 Swedish comrades. They got involved in a battle against imperial forces, the imperial forces routed them. And according to many of the major scholars, Charles Louis managed to get back, having come across, swam the river, clutching onto a bit of foliage, and his horses drowned, his carriage sank. And the leader of the Swedish contingent, who was a Scotsman called James King, later Lord Ithan, he only got back with only two comrades back to Minden. And so the scale of the defeat was massive. Now, where does this come from? It comes from a poem and a broadsheet published by the Imperial General, and it has been repeated by rote ever since. It doesn't matter if you read a German source or a Swedish source or a British source, this is what happened. Prince Rupert rashly charged at the, the enemy, got himself captured, and that was the end of the army. But there's a few problems with the story. I was doing a, a class about small battles, and so I started to read around the sources. And suddenly you realize there weren't 4,000 Palatine soldiers there at all. There was maybe 1,700 because most of the Palatine army hadn't arrived yet. That in fact, the Swedish army wasn't 1,000, it was nearly 6,000, but of which about four to 5,000 participated in the battle. When you read the account of James King, written two days after the battle, he doesn't even mention the Palatinate contingent at all, nor the loss of Prince Rupert, nor the Palatine officers. And the reason for that is that there was a huge debate amongst the Swedes about whether they should even become involved because the war aims were different for the Swedish army and the Palatinate army. So what's happened is that it has become easy because Prince Rupert is involved. And Prince Rupert, of course, becomes more famous during the British civil wars and, and even into the 1650s under the Cromwellian period. Because he got captured, then that becomes the focus for the storytelling ever since. Because the Imperials, thinking of this as a war, continuation war of the Bohemian conflict, say, we've now got the Elector's little brother, and we've captured all these officers, and we killed the enemy and routed them totally. What nobody did until Catherine and I started to do the translations of the German sources, uh, Catherine Zuckerman did all the German, by the way, I, I make no linguistic claims, is we realized that all the Swedes, bar a couple of hundred, got back to the camp within two days, and that subsequently they did so much damage to the Imperial Army that they actually had more officers that they could exchange for all the officers, and only two remained in captivity until the 1640s, which was one senior German general and Prince Rupert himself. And that actually, from a Swedish perspective, 
it wasn't even considered a feat at the time. It was considered a something of a bonus because now they didn't have to deal with the Palatinate army because they got themselves destroyed. And the big problem for the Swedes was when the rest of the Palatinate army arrived, James King's main concern is who's in command here, me or the elector. So when you actually do this close textual analysis of all the sources from all the sites, which is basic historical scholarship, you come to a completely different understanding of the day. But because of the importance of what Prince Rupert will become as a mythical character in the British civil wars, particularly the English civil wars, a character of romance who's got many biographers, Patrick Mora being the one who's, who's written the most about him, this becomes the narrative that people want to follow. That Prince Rupert gallantly charged, he was abandoned by his brother, and the Swedes were crushed. And actually, the analysis is something completely different. So what I was trying to explain to my students in the class was empirical analysis isn't about going and finding old documents. It's about reading the scholars who've written about a thing and unpicking it to find out why are they repeating this? Why are they saying that? Where has myth been introduced or encouraged? Where is the deeper scholarship and the other sources round about? When, if you're not looking at something from all perspectives equally, then are you actually doing the basics of being a good scholar of history? Mm -hmm. And when you apply this analysis, not just for Lemgo, but if you apply it to the Battle of Whitstock in 1636 or the Battle of Marston Moor in 1644, you find exactly the same. The myth about who is in command, the damage done to the enemy can easily be unturned. In the Marston Moor, of course, the case is easy. It's again Prince Rupert, our, our famous mythological character here. But also on the other side, Oliver Cromwell. Everybody needs Oliver Cromwell to have won the Battle of Marston Moor. He wasn't even seventh in command at the end of the battle on the winning side. So the purpose of the Lemgo article was really to have a case study where you could see, here's what historians have said. Here is the myth and the legend. Here is the character they focus on. This is what alternative sources tell you. And that's why going back to the sources is something you should do after you've critically evaluated what the present state of the orthodoxy is around the subject. I fully expect somebody to come along and say, but you didn't use these sources. True story. I look forward to that day. <laughs> but it's it's like like peeling an onion and finding that there's a pear underneath and there's an apple underneath that and a plum underneath that, isn't it? As you're not, with that article, you are really helping us understand the many, many layers of storytelling that go into mythologizing a, a war story or a battle story. So really fascinating to hear, for example, that civil war storytelling was shaping then the 30 years war storytelling a bit before that. And then that trickling down into scholarship lots of biases at play as well biases towards personalities personalities that people have heard of personalities that people have some kind of stake in championing or, or telling more stories about and the different motives in the ancient the contemporary storytelling as well you know motives that might have been behind the poem and the broadsheet on the imperial side but motives you know determining what the other side leave out or or keep in as well you're absolutely right to point out that it's not just the case that reports and descriptions of battle at the time were selective and distorting, but that scholars since haven't necessarily questioned that, that they've perpetuated that biased kind of storytelling. What wider lessons should we then draw about how we do military history differently? You've pulled out some, but it'd just be interesting to kind of pull that out a little bit more about what should we as historians and, you know, people thinking about storytelling around conflict take from this? 
I think it's almost a cynical disregard of what's been published to date in my case. I'm a pretty black and white kind of person in some ways. And because I didn't go through a regular historical training, I did a, a joint degree in sociolinguistics and history. So I, I missed a lot of the historiography and the method and the theory. And I was told by Paul Duke, start at the beginning, read to the end, read everything. Whatever the subject is, just find everything you can on it and do it from all sides. So I actually think it's going back to basics and not over-theorizing things. We could look at the Battle of Lemgo through the vision of game theory. You could do all that. I'm not interested in What I'm actually interested in is what is the existing orthodoxy or contesting orthodoxies in a given subject? What source base was used by the other? And having analyzed the orthodoxies or contesting orthodoxies and looked at the source base and really tried to find what else is going on, then what are my conclusions? I've done it for four battles now, and every single one of the battles has had a complete rewrite, yeah. especially in the British context, Marston Moore, yeah. which even the Cromwell Association, I've had to concede, was, yeah, OK, so Cromwell wasn't in charge, which gives them a big problem because they just rededicated the memorial to Cromwell at Marston Moore about mm -hmm. three or four years ago. And they now realise it's a myth. Yeah. You know? He was not in charge. I'm not doing it to be bad. I'm just doing it because I want to understand. When I started looking at Marston Moore, the myth was said by C.H. Firth at the end of the 19th century. The entirety of the Covenanting army, including the General Leslie, ran away. And I was thinking, well, that doesn't really sit with what I've understood of him. I think he would rather have died than, than run away. So let's find out why he ran away. And then it was only when I started to look at all those, instead of reading what Many people, like Peter Young is the most famous scholar on the Battle of Marston Moor. But what he considers to be a contemporary document is not a contemporary document. For example, he uses a source by, written by Somerville. Somerville was one of the colonels at the battle. But if he'd actually read the introduction, he'd realise it wasn't written by Somerville. It was written by a relative trying to restore Somerville's reputation through a narrative projection of what the relative thought Somerville would look like. It's not a memoir by the, the combatant at all, but he puts it down in the same list of primary sources. And we have to stop thinking that because something was written 300 years ago, that it's a contemporary source for the issue. So if you can actually narrow the focus to what was being said within a month of the battle, then that gives you a clearer understanding. By the end of that month, you'll have had the messenger coming and saying, everybody's run away. And then you'll have had the, yeah, we heard that, but it's not true, to the, well, actually, the casualties on the other side weren't as big as we thought they were. In fact, that exact letter comes out of uh, Minden in Germany, where it says, we thought that the defeat was catastrophic, but now we're standing here looking at all the soldiers that we were told were dead. Something's not right. And that letter doesn't appear until about four weeks, I think, after the battle, that that is then sent back to Britain. So it's really about not only saying there is an old document, it's really looking at what is the purpose of this document? Who is it trying to impress? And that's why the original imperial broadsheet with a poem, it, he wants to make himself a bigger character. That's fine, but take it for what it is. He can say that he took, you know, X amount of prisoners. But when we've tried to actually trace who those prisoners were, we've, we've narrowed the number right down. There's names that, that appear to just be made up. They don't appear in any other source apart from in the imperial renditions of it. So you can just start throwing names around. Yeah. It's, a, it's a different way of, of approaching it. 
Absolutely. So you've talked about the way in which that might make us think critically and critically unpick scholarship, but also the way in which we might end up questioning what museums or what tourist sites are uh, telling us about individual figures and historical events. So I suppose I've got a question which is really trying to get us thinking about why we consciously and subconsciously favour certain kinds of war story and battle story over others, and why we also listen more and pay more attention to certain kinds of narrator over others. So when you unpick the battles that you've looked at, and you said you've you've sort of done this kind of approach to four, do we end up with much more complex storytelling rather than kind of black and white pictures? And is that for us as historians, but also as members of the public, as people who consume war stories for all sorts of reasons? Is that somehow less narratively satisfying? Are there fewer cliches and tropes like impressive routes and lots of baddies? Are the stories that emerge when you do that kind of analysis more grey, more complex, even perhaps more mundane? And is that why we favour some of the more colourful, the more flamboyant storytelling? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think in a British royalist context, people know who the Marquis of Montrose is. People know who Prince Rupert is. These, These are you know, heroic, dashing figures that a lot of people can get behind. But again, if you look at the 1642 to 1644 period, then it is not Prince Rupert who's in charge of the Royalist Army, as just about every book in the English Civil War says. It's actually Patrick Riven who's in charge, but he's not a well-known character. And if we look at Alexander Leslie, who I've done the most work on, he writes something interesting, and it, it might explain the lack of why we have Alexander Leslie's own version of events. The letter he writes after Marston was in, yeah, we won. But he says something later in his career, in about the 1647, where he says, I don't have to tell people what I've done because I only need one witness and he's above me in heaven. And that, of course, then reflects back on the Calvinism of the soldier, that he doesn't have to do anything to impress anybody round about. He doesn't have to write poetry about his great adventures. He believes that at the end of his life, he is going to go to heaven because he's one of the elect. So the, the, the letters trying to actually put together an archive that we could use to tell his story, although we tried to tell it not as a biography. We use them as a central character in a book about Scottish generals in the Thirty Years' War. He was incredibly hard to pin down because he, he seldom writes more than three or four lines, and it's almost never in his handwriting. He can write German because there are a couple that we can say that's definitely him, but he's not interested in, in anything other than what must be done. He's not interested even in writing about how to organize the army. And he's certainly not interested in the interface with civilians. He says explicitly, he does it at Strathland and he does it again when he enters England in 1644. Get me five civilians so that I don't have to deal with civilians because they lie, they cheat, they try to deceive. I'm here to fight. So give me people. So under the Solemn League and Covenant, he actually gets five people appointed by the English Parliament to sit with him as his interface with the English populations he's going to have to deal with. He's not interested in that. That is not his war. Give me the enemy. I know how to deal with them. He's not colourful. He's a dull Calvinist (laughs) who just sees life very differently. Alexander Leslie, in the same room as Prince Rupert, I'd be sitting having a pint with Prince Rupert. But but who's the better soldier? Mm -hmm. That's the different question. And the more Uh, reliable source as well. There's no self-aggrandizement with him and many of of the others who are not interested in telling the story. They are interested in the outcome, but they're they're not concerned about 
that kind of reputation because they're so in tune with their Calvinist beliefs. Coming back to the 30 years war then, you've already helped to start to picture some of the ripple effects that led into other wars, other conflicts, um, but also ripple effects on the civilian population. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about the long and the short term impacts of the 30 years war, but also what kinds of stories were told about those impacts, not about the war itself, which may be shaped attitudes and approaches to later politics, to later conflicts. I think one of the main things is that some of the actors who'd been in the 30 years war, once you've been at war for that length of time, it's very hard for them to find a different way out. One of the main actors I'm thinking about here is Carl X of Sweden, who is sitting with nothing to do, but he's a soldier. He's a soldier by nature. And he led some of the campaigns into South Germany and towards Bohemia towards the end of the 30 years war. And this peace doesn't sit well with him. So what's he going to do? There is no war with Sweden after 1648. It takes a long time to decommission the armies. You've got to then defend your new gained territories. But when he becomes king in 1654, when he takes over from his cousin, Queen Christina, then within a year, he's at war with Poland, which is a, a war for which there is very little grounding. There's a familial contest between the Swedish Vassas and the Polish Vassas, but that's really been wrapped up in 1629. But no, Karl wants to go to war. He doesn't just go to war against Poland, Lithuania. He goes to war against Denmark, Norway, twice. He wants to continue. If Sweden has now got possessions, then why not take more chunks out of of Denmark, Norway, which he does. The Thirty Years' War sowed the seeds of future conflict. Many of the decommissioned British Soldiers at the end of the 1648 period from the the Scottish and English brigades, they go off to Venice to fight Turks rather than come home. Many of them feel they can't come home because they don't believe in the Cromwellian protectorate as it would become. But they certainly don't want to get involved in the British civil wars. That's stated by many of the colonels. So what's better than not fighting Christians? Because we've just spent years doing that. Uh, Let's go and fight Turks instead. One of the main outcomes of the Thirty Years' War is is pushing other wars so that you get intra-Scandinavian warfare, certainly inter-Baltic warfare. You get the transfer of of military to other parts of the globe as well. The Westphalian peace treaties, the two treaties of, of 1648, set up a new order of sorts within Europe, even if not everybody has bought into it. They set up new ways of looking at states. They set up a kind of more international legal framework for how and when States will go to war. The re-establishment of religious toleration to a degree, because remember, let's go right back to the start here. Who started or what started the Thirty Years' War? It was the Bohemian Revolt. And it was going to be for the rights of the Calvinists or those Calvinist populations to have freedom of worship. And the one thing that doesn't happen in 1648 is that freedom for Bohemian Protestants. So if there's a loser in the Thirty Years' War, it's the Protestant Bohemian nobility. And I heard it likened by a poll to the situation Poland found itself at the end of World War II. If World War II, if Britain going to war with Poland was about making sure that the Nazis and their Soviets could not take Poland and dismantle it, could not occupy it, then how come one of the aggressors got to occupy it? And that's a a way of thinking about the Bohemian situation at the end of 1648. And unlike elsewhere in the Holy Roman Empire, the aggressive anti-Calvinist stance that was taken by the Catholics in Bohemia made sure that we had a Bohemian exodus that continued for generations after the Thirty Years' War. 
really, really interesting. And that analogy with Poland in World War II, who didn't do so well in the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 in particular, one particular stakeholder that came out of that very much as a loser. As you know, our project is very much interested not just in war stories, but in how we understand and visualise conflict resolution and peace building. And as you've alluded to, the Peace of Westphalia was multiple treaties, a complex process, as you might imagine, given the complexity of the conflict. Are there particular people driving that. You've told us a little bit about who it didn't benefit, but particular people it did benefit. And would it be fair to think of it very much as top-down peace building? You know, what kind of peace did it bring to ordinary people as well as resolving geopolitical disputes, as well as resolving some kind of key religious principles and so on? I think the main question there about who was driving it was obviously going to be people like the electors of the Holy Roman Empire, those potentates who had authority from France, from from Sweden, who didn't benefit were some of the combatants who who had no say whatsoever. The British had no input in the Thirty Years' War, despite being heavily involved, especially at the start. Christian IV of Denmark-Norway didn't get much out of it. I think, though, some of the losers, and I'm going to take back down away from the top. You know me, Alice, I like it. I I like the the, the bottom-up approach. We've got an analysis going on about what happens to those people at the end of the war who had invested their lives or their fortune such as it was, but found themselves isolated. For example, if you were a a widow from Sweden, if you lived in Sweden proper, or if you lived in Swedish occupied territories, or if you were left behind the lines after the Swedes withdrew back to the Baltic coast, how easy was it for you to get reparations for the death of your husband. Does a widow living in England, whose soldier husband died fighting for Sweden, can she get any kind of recompense if she's not physically there? How does it work for those Catholics who fought for the Protestant sides? Is there a difference in the way regimes would implement widow allowances such as they were, depending if you were physically in the country or in territory controlled, or had been forced by circumstance and found yourself outside that sphere of control, could you be dismissed? And so one of the projects I'm looking at now is this impact on the ground level. What happened to demobilized injured soldiers at the end of the war? How do we get to that? And of course, that's extremely difficult because allusions to them are incredibly hard to find. You know, this is this problem that we've still got with people thinking of uh, soldiers in the past as some kind of one-dimensional cardboard cutout of which there was 50,000 as opposed to thinking of 50,000 people, individuals, Mm -hmm. human beings with families, feelings, friends, you know, and trying to find out what happened to all these at the end of the war, Mm -hmm. those who survived, what was the impact of that? And if you're somewhere like from the British Isles and you find that your country is under a regime that you don't approve of or cannot get on board with, in this case, the Cromwellian Protectorate, the Commonwealth, where do you go? What happens to you? What's your options? And that's a, a kind of post-peace scenario that I'm, I'm trying to get mm. together. Because, as you know, Westphalia has been studied and studied and studied. And the, the, the most recent piece of work up that I know about Westphalia is Catherine Zuckerman from the University of Highlands and Islands. I'm very interested in that piece and that work that she's doing. But I still think, for me, it's more important to find out about what happened to the ordinary man, woman and mm. child that finds themselves in that post-priest process. But people can say, that's it, it's over. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not over. 
It's not over if you can't feed your kids. It's not over if, if your wife is left stranded with, with no job, wandering across Europe, trying to get back to where? Where is home now? It's a very difficult situation. So peace for the state players, for the big actors, absolutely. For many of them, but not all, as we've said. But because somewhere is at peace does not mean that the war is over, either physically or metaphorically, for many of the actors who were participants in it, willingly or otherwise. Yeah. And as you as you pointed out there, just as it's very important when we're trying to visualise the 30s war or indeed any conflict, to look at those perspectives, to excavate the lives of ordinary people during the conflict, it's equally important to try and identify what happened to them, what those lived experiences were of all sorts of people who fall through the cracks of our history telling in the post-conflict period that, as you say, goes on and on and on um, for many people. I just want to wrap up with a couple of final questions, if I may. So I've got one very local question now, really relating to a pair of Scottish diplomats who were involved very much in the Thirty Years' War, Sir Robert Anstruther and Sir James Spence, both of them with strong connections to Fife and St Andrews. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how visualising the Thirty Years' War through their lives can help us understand the bigger picture? Obviously, the case studies in themselves are interesting because they represent a form of diplomacy that was not common to England in this period, before James VI and first came to the throne. And that is the diplomacy of the familiar. Whereas an English embassy would traditionally be several hundred people going with lavish gifts for whichever potentate they were going to go to. Scotland as a poorer country couldn't do that, but it had a great plan B. And plan B was you send in a familiar at a young age. So in Robert Anstruther's case, he went to the Danish court, Scotland and Denmark-Norway are in a new alliance after 1589. You send Anstruther to the Danish court as a page for Christian IV. They become friends. The deal is that he should learn all the languages, so he becomes fluent in German, in Danish, in Latin, in French. Most of his letters are in his own handwriting in all these languages. It's fantastic. And it works in this sort of way. You can trust, because Robert Anstruther would always see King James as his dread sovereign, but what he calls his king is Christian IV. So he's making this distinction. And he's not so keen on Charles I, it has to be said. (laughs) But this form of diplomacy is intimacy. When Christian IV talks about any other diplomat, then he will talk to them in French or in German. But when he talks to or with Anstruther, he talks to him in Danish. When Anstruther talks to Christian IV or writes to Christian IV, he does so in Danish. But he'll write to the Danish Chancellor in French because that's formal. So this informality actually gets him so far inside the Danish court that he could call it espionage, that he can report back to his dread sovereign if that needs to be so. And he's actually quite smug about it on one occasion. Bearing in mind, he moved out to Denmark, Norway, and I think uh, 1606. And in 1633, he writes back to Charles I and he said, I was sitting with the Chancellor and with the whole state council, and they were speaking ill of you. And then they remembered who I was. He'd gone so deep cover because he, he was, to all intents and purposes, a native, yeah. but he was always yeah. responsible back to Christian IV. And so when you look to his stepbrother, Sir James Spence, when they are working for each other's kings, say at the Treaty of Knered in in 1613, they actually swap communications, which they shouldn't be doing. 
there's a great letter from Lanster that says, okay, here's the letter from my king. What's your king saying? And they actually wrap up the Canary Peace Treaty because they've got such access, intimate access to each other using familial kinship in a, in a very Scottish sense of it, to work for their mutual dread sovereign, not quite against the interests of the kings they work for, but they're certainly uh, working to get the peace settled. And that peace couldn't have happened if you'd had traditional embassies coming from King James to sit and represent Denmark and sit and represent Sweden. It's, it's because of this informality, it's a different way of getting to peace through this use of this familiar diplomat as opposed to the, the large-scale embassy. So, yeah, they're quite exciting characters. And myself and Alexia Grosjean, my academic partner and my wife, and Peter Maxwell-Stewart from uh, St Andrews are currently... Well, we've transcribed them all now. We've we've got all the all the Scandinavian letters transcribed out of all the languages. So that that it's a big undertaking. We reckon in about a year's time we're going to publish them, but there's a lot of work to go through. Yeah. To make sure that Peter's translations are great, Alexia's translations are great, but now we've got a cross-reference with all the other documentation that we've got concerning these characters to give each letter's context. And then, as you know yourself, when you get to these stages, which letters are actually worth publishing and which are just... Hmm. (laughs) So we're trying to narrow that down. We've taken away the earlier stuff. We're focusing exclusively on the 30 years war period, how these two diplomats, Stuart diplomats, are representing the Stuart kings in combatant nations, what they're telling each other, who gets involved in espionage, both do, by the way, uh, and, and to what degree they're willing to work and James Spence is a general in the Swedish army, but he writes a brilliant letter to the Chancellor of Sweden, which says, I'll do anything for you, but never make me do something against my dread sovereign. I will be your spy, so long as it doesn't harm him. Yeah. That, again, is something I've, I've never seen another spy say such a thing, but it's interesting stuff. And because, they're, of course, they're, they're from St Andrews or Environs, I think it's Crail and Anstruther, actually, that they're from. Both, both were graduates of the university. I, I think they do have a special interest. Yeah. For all of us that have worked there. Yeah, absolutely. And you started at the start of a conversation with the analogy of the Olympic rings overlapping. And I'm thinking about all those overlapping loyalties and overlapping relationships in this very complex familial intrigue that you've got going on with these two characters, as you say, from Fife. Steve, it's been fascinating hearing lots about the Thirty Years' War, diving into it, diving into the complexity, thinking very much about the storytelling around it at the time, in later generations, later centuries, down the years, through scholarship and so on. If I may, I just want to zoom out now a bit from that for a final kind of broader question. Um, You've talked very insightfully about how we should do military history, but I want to end just by quizzing you on why. So you teach, as I mentioned at the start, at the Swedish Defence University, you're head of the history department there, and, and many of your students have careers in the military. What does studying the history of, for instance, the Thirty Years' War bring to their learning? And and more generally, how does history help us visualise and understand current and indeed future conflicts? It's a great question and one that we do consider here quite a lot. Yes, as you said, we have teaching courses here for the higher officer programme. We also have the standard cadet officer programme, so that would be the equivalent to the Sandhurst uh, cohort. We've also got civilians, a large cohort of bachelor students and master's students who are civilians. So what does teaching military history teach? Let's focus on the officer corps here. If you think about it this way, soldiers, whether they've enlisted or gone in to the 
to the subaltern level are indoctrinated. They have to be. Soldiers have to follow orders. Soldiers have to understand that they have to get a corps d'esprit, and at the junior levels of officer training, that's what you do. You introduce the history of the regiment, the toasting song. The cavalry regiment are one of the best ones to see here. Their toasts are amazing. How they deal with faking horses in, in the mess. It's magnificent. But when you get to the higher officers, what are we trying to do with them? We're trying to take people with the rank of major, and we're getting them to do master's courses, with the idea that they can get promoted to lieutenant colonel. Colonel, Why are we doing that? To take a soldier who many of these people have been in the military for 30 years, take a soldier who's been indoctrinated all their life, and to get them to be able to think critically is an important component of anybody who's going to be deployed. Because especially in a Swedish context, which has been, if not neutral, certainly non-aligned for so long, that you have to step away from indoctrination. You have to think critically. And one of the ways that we can do that as historians is to give them examples from history where you can war game them, if you like. You can say, this is a situation. Here's what the forces had at their disposal. Here's the disposition. What happened next? And you can get them to war game it. Then you can get them to read about what actually happened. You can teach them things about mission command, which is the independence of the commander on the ground, which is a strong part of the Swedish uh, defence system here, we can get them to think, okay, this is what the rule book says, but that's not what I think is happening here. We have to think outside the box. I mean, if you look at what Clausewitz says, he says it's genius, but there's more to it than that. It, it is about getting people to think critically. You're not telling them what to think, you're teaching them how to think. And that is a basic premise of all historical scholarship. So we're just doing it in a different environment where often we're teaching to exclusively civilian students or exclusively military, but more and more we're getting military uniforms into the classroom and civilians going into the military. So right now, one of my civilian students is at the Norwegian uh, Defence University. We're, we're trying to blend it up so people can see different perspectives and can try to, to just think differently. So you can take things from ancient times, teaching them the Peloponnesian War, we can teach them about Christine de Bizarre, we can teach them uh, Robert Monroe, we can teach them why Robert Monroe wasn't as good a general as he thought he was, he lost the Battle of Vimberg, and we get them to think, what was wrong there? What? Why did things go wrong in these situations? Where did things go right? That doesn't mean that we can try to replicate that in any future war, you can't. We're, we're not political scientists, we're historians. We're not here to try and inform what will happen next. We're here to try to say, now that you're you're starting to think more critically, read more deeply, what do you understand about a situation that you, you could find yourself in? But we're not predicting the outcome. And we can't cherry pick examples from history that you might like. In fact, what I very often do in my classes, I don't teach them about Breitenfeld. I teach them, I, I'll very often teach an, a catastrophe and ask them what went wrong for Sweden there. What, what went wrong at Poltava? And and because they're in uniform, many of them will, will think, well, you know, they've been brought up with the, the greatness of Charles XII, the greatness of Gustav Adolf. And you're trying to say, were they that great? Really? Why did Napoleon not learn from Charles XII's mistakes about trying to go for Moscow in, in winter? Are we always down to, this is what it says in the rule book? So you're just trying to expand that mind and get them, encourage them not to read about Thucydides, but to read Thucydides, 
not to get them to read the regurgitated articles about Clausewitz, but read Clausewitz. And what you can, you know, get them to think, what do I not need to read in Clausewitz? You don't need to read about the Napoleonic campaigns because that's obsolete. What about the thinking about the fog of war, etc.? Get them to focus on what you can actually take from a book that is of, of use and will teach you something as opposed to, that's a nice story about Napoleon. So, so it's really trying to get that critical thinking faculty, get the critical juices flowing. And for people who have been in uniform for so long that, and I'm not suggesting that they're robots, they're certainly not that, but actually getting them to understand it, it's, it's absolutely, not only is it all right, it's to be encouraged to think more critically about the situations you find yourself in. And partly so that history doesn't repeat itself, not so that people can go around repeating history. Steve, it's been really fascinating talking to you about the Thirty Years' War and about history, military history, how and why we do it. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Alice, for inviting me. Appreciate it. And thank you also to you, our listeners, for joining us again. We've got some more episodes coming up over the next few months as we continue to explore narratives of conflict in different periods and places and their impact on wider habits of visualising war and peace. So please do join in for those. If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever platform you use. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps people find the show. If you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zafia Gertin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>